Hi there, welcome to episode 96 of Fear of a Black Planet, at least I think it's 96. Um, I want to talk about Martin Luther King today, I think it, it, at least it was the other day or something like that. It is either Martin Luther King week or it's there was a day, the other day. Was, I, know, I don't follow that kind of stuff and I'm always way behind on that sort of stuff, but <clears throat> there was a... Um, a really interesting piece that was written by a journalist who I really admire and have a kind of uh, jealous admiration for. Uh, let me just find him on Twitter and see if I can find the article because I think it was a really balanced piece. And Coleman Hughes is the name. Um, I saw an interview with him on the Dave Rubin show. Yeah, so this, this uh, he's kind of a rising star. Part of what's really annoying about him is that he's a, only an undergraduate at Columbia in philosophy, and he's clearly incredibly analytically gifted. Um, let me just find out when Martin Luther King Day was, or whether it's coming up, perhaps. Uh, all right, okay, so, well, it's today. Ah, well, there you go. Um, um, more on it than I thought I was. That's right, yeah. Today is Monday the 21st, right? And it says it's uh, that that's... Anyway, I consider Martin Luther King one of my heroes purely because his message was what I believe to be a fulfilment of... <clears throat> this, this annoys people. In fact, I actually got into an argument with uh, Akala <laughs> on my old Twitter account, the rapper Akala, who I, I've always liked, but he was going on about some identity politics shite, and I feel that some I feel that sometimes when he makes those arguments, it's a bit shifty. And um, and I got into an argument with him. And I say, you know, he was saying, "Oh, Western Western uh, culture is imperialism." Basically, that argument, which I find infuriating, because I think that the really what was most successful about Martin Luther King's argument was that actually he was arguing for the fulfillment of a Western ideal of individual freedom. Uh, that in a sense that what he was using a kind of John Locke view of individual liberty to argue that it was unsustainable for America. And he was obviously right to have a kind of apartheid in its own country because it was completely anathema to the very founding values of enlightenment and, uh, um, what would you say, European ideas of liberty, which were the founding kind of principles of American, um, of the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights. <clears throat> and that's the basis of his argument, I think, and it's quite frequently overlooked. Uh, and so, for that reason, he I consider him a hero. Um, and also, I think that that, that, that kind of just the combination of fearlessness and genuine, compassionate love for humanity. Yes, I think that is it actually, isn't it? It's the the thing that really is so striking, I think, for all thinking people about Martin Luther King, is that there's a real love of humanity in it. Despite, but, but a fearlessness in the face of human evil. So that at all times he's able to squarely look the evil and he did even up until his own death look that evil in in the eye without losing any faith 
in human potential. And that's a truly inspiring thought, I think, and something that modern activists and the modern PC identity politics crew could do well to think about because it's explicitly non-Marxist, explicitly non-post-structuralist, non-nihilistic way of looking at human progress and progressivism. It's it's, It's the brand of progressivism that's really worthwhile because it has a faith in human potential. It it doesn't see... It doesn't um, have this sort of blind view that human beings need to be remoulded and reshaped in some kind of surgical, scientific way. It's a far more evolutionary view of human potential that accepts, I think because it's Christian, and I think that it accepts the nature of human sin, but the, the Christian message is essentially you are a sinner, there's no getting around it, you are broken and you have a massive capacity for evil and that's inherent within you but the message of Christ is that despite that your life is worthwhile despite that you have the potential to conquer it and here's how you conquer it look at the crucifix and you know that and I think that that informed Martin Luther King Jr's whole philosophical outlook and I think that um, because it didn't have this sort of spiritual utopian view of, of human nature that we must root out the things we don't like, which is the, the sort of informing kind of problem with political correctness is that it, it has this very utopian, top-down approach. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have some kind, sometimes you, you shouldn't have guiding principles and sort of overall philosophical views that, uh, you know, in the public discussion and that we should all be kind of, in some sense, top-down monitoring ourselves and sort of saying, well, here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a standard to which I'm not living up to, but that can only come from a kind of a meeting of the a kind of grassroots evolution of the soul and the sort of uh, universal top-down ideals of the society. It can't just be do as I say, because that's not, not because I'm trying to excuse people or trying to justify it. It's just that that's not change. It's not change if people don't believe it, if people don't change their beliefs. And the problem with political correctness is that it's all about just, it can become, it can become too easy a form of uh, propaganda you know, and that's why all these corporations use it, like Nike and Gillette. All the while they're using products from the Earth resources, and all the while they're um, exploiting low wages in uh, developing countries. And but they, but as long as they do these little tick boxes, they can get away with it because it's difficult to disagree with it, isn't it? But I take an existentialist view, which I think actually is is a humanist view, which is that if it's not transforming the human soul, if the individual's conscience isn't um, profoundly affected by this choice, then it's not truly moral. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't have those. I I, I get it. I get that we should have some kind of public um, standards and that... uh, 
they're useful, but they aren't the sole basis of morality. That's my point. And, and too often political correctness confuses sort of public standards with genuine morality. And that's my criticism. Anyway, and I think that Martin Luther King intuitively at least understood that, whether he wrote about this kind of thing or not, I'm not sure. But I think he understood that and he understood that the battle for hearts and minds is far more important than any um, cheap political win. And he did it. In, in it did cost him his life. But he had that fearlessness in the face of that evil as well. And, and even when he was facing his own death, he knew his life was in danger. The message was still very much a belief in human potential. And I think that, that that's why he transcends racial boundaries and why he he should be still um, a resource for all people to come together and um, exchange their common humanity rather than bickering and whining and moaning and um, you know just nitpicking at each other, which is what our public lives become because of social media. Anyway, let me read this read this piece. I think he's written on this stuff before, Coleman Hughes, and I really recommend him. What well, he, he writes for Quillette mostly, but I really recommend this guy. I, I recommend looking on the Dave Rubin YouTube channel for the interview with him. He's an incredibly smart guy, um, devastatingly smart, actually. I think that, you know, at, at his young age, he has this kind of um, composed, considered calm intellectual poise which is really rare and which I, I couldn't even have dreamt of at his age um, and can't probably even dream of now um, but he, he, he isn't just self-serving either sometimes with philosophers and this is my experience in analytic philosophy is it becomes self-serving it just becomes like you know how clever I am puzzles sort of masturbatory but <clears throat> I think it's really dangerous when a guy like that starts using his analytical um, acumen for and that analyzing public life, I think it's, it's brilliantly dangerous. I mean, I mean, I think it's a positive danger because it's a danger to ideological thinking on all sides. So anyway, and I think that there's this always this battle. This is the sort of premise of his of his article. Every time Martin Luther King Day comes around, there's always this battle of the legacy. This sort of Black Lives Matter identity politics crew clearly want to claim him. But then also the conservatives try to say that, you know, you can't claim him because his message was a kind of universalism. Um, and then there's, so, it, so the, this great man's legacy becomes a kind of Twitter squabble and a hashtag. And, and Coleman Hughes is just, he's just saying, do we really need to do this, this this time? And this is his piece on this. Okay, so here, I'll try and make sure that when I'm reading it, there's a different tone from when I'm speaking so that it doesn't just feel like I'm all over the place here. But the headline is Martin Luther King, Colorblind Radical. Subtitle, he flirted with democratic socialism as a, and opposed, Vietnam, opposed the Vietnam War, but stood against identity politics. Yeah, and by the way, I have a collection of his sermons and essays, Martin Luther King's, and conveniently the only essay that's left out is Martin Luther King Jr.'s critique of communism. And I think that's very interesting that somehow... Um, there's this attempt to 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 claim Martin Luther King Jr. for the radical left. When he was, he was very left-wing and he was a kind of Keynesian liberal leftist. But he was he was he was sort of like a Christian socialist, you might say. Um but there's this uh there's this desire to 
to to sort of scrub out his criticisms and his reservations about communism and the radical left, and I think that's very interesting. <clears throat> anyway, this is Coleman Hughes. Monday marks Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which means it's time for the political commentariat to fight its yearly battle for King's legacy. For critics of identity politics on the left and right, King's appeals to common humanity over racial division are a rebuke not only to white supremacy, but also to the racial ideology of today's progressives. In this view, King's dream of a colourblind America, where the content of our character matters more than the colour of our skin, is hampered by progressives' focus on checking white privilege and stoking black grievance. To progressives, such critics have sanitised King's legacy, erasing its radical elements to avoid acknowledging persistent racial inequality. Progressives highlight his opposition to the Vietnam War, his advocacy for a full full employment policy and a guaranteed minimum income, and his contempt for the materialism spreading through American culture. King's progressive admirers see colour blindness as a pretext for apathy about the plight of black Americans, apathy that King fought vehemently in his own day. The refrain that King was a radical is less an argument against, colour, against the colour blind ideal than a way of changing the subject. King was a radical but by today's standards, only, in non on, only on non-racial issues. Yes, he opposed the Vietnam War, flirted with democratic socialism, and abhorred materialism. But he framed these radical positions as elements of common struggle. What policy could be more colorblind than guaranteed income for all Americans? Yeah, good point, that. With regard to the role that racial identity should play in... With regard to the role that racial identity should play in politics, King was unequivocal. First and foremost, we are human beings, not members of races. The verbal tick of modern racial justice activists, <laughs> verbal tick, yeah, great writing. The verbal tick of modern racial justice activists, quotes, as a black man, dot, 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 would, would sound foreign on his lips. Absolutely true that. that the, I, the whole point of, I, this is me speaking, the whole point of identity politics is that, the, um, that, my, right, that, that my identity determines my rights. That's the objection. That's the principle to which I object and which I think is the strongest criticism of identity politics. And it's absolutely the opposite of what Martin Luther King Jr. was, was advocating, which is that I have rights regardless of my identity. Anyway, even when fighting explicitly racist policies, he deployed, he deployed universal principles rather than a tribal grievance narrative. Quote, the problem is not a purely racial one, with Negroes set against whites, King writes in the civil rights movement in his, in his 1958 essay, Three Ways of Meeting Oppression. He adds that nonviolent resistance is not aimed at oppressors, but against oppression. Under its banner, consciences, not racial groups, are enlisted. It's a very subtle argument. So it's, it's not about um, revenge on particular people. It's about fighting uh, a way of thinking and it's about igniting a part of humanity that is suppressed by this way of thinking and that we need to enlist that part of in each human being so it's a very christian ideal that we need to start appealing to the better natures of everyone everyone's conscience the better angels of everyone's nature um it's, it's a much more subtle argument than identity politics and it's very christian anyway Coleman Hughes. King's contemporary counterpoints were the Nation of Islam and the Black Power Movement, which emphasised racial division over common humanity. King didn't mince words when addressing these movements in a 1960s speech at Depuy University. 
Quote, black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy, and God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men, he said. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race and in the creation of a society where all men can live, live together as brothers. Right. Now, that to me is the central message of the 1960s counterculture movement. And it seems to be the very opposite of identity politics. When, when you start saying, you can claim to have the sort of brotherhood of man thing, but when you start claiming that your identity determines your rights, then you're essentially contradicting yourself. Anyway, Coleman Hughes. While no one can know what King would have thought about Black Lives Matter movement, we can take a clue from his speech, Where Do We Go From Here?, given in 1967, a year before his death. Quotes, let us be dissatisfied until that day when nobody will shout white power, when nobody will shout black power, but everybody will talk about God's power and human power. If conservatives whitewash King's opinions on economics and foreign policy, then progressives whitewash his views on race. King discussed many topics that are now considered taboo, if not racist, on the left. Consider the problem of violence in the black community. King lamented frequently and consistently seeing brutal acts and crimes by Negroes and against Negroes. In many a week in Chicago, he observed in 1966, as many or more Negro youngsters have been killed in gang fights as were killed in the riots there last summer. A glance at today's homicide statistics in Chicago showed that little has changed since King made that observation, yet such violence gets scant attention from racial justice activists. So it's very important, this point, because what he's saying is that like nowadays saying that kind of thing you're you're basically branded as someone trying to um uh whitewash uh the the sort of claims of black lives matter and that you are in some sense trying to change the subject or you're being evasive or um it's uh, like you said at the beginning of this piece you're being a, it's a kind of uh, justification of apathy uh, you know saying oh it's a kind of whataboutery well what about this but it's not actually a form of whataboutery it's um it's sort of seeing the big picture we sort of see here's here's one truth but here's another truth and and and, and is the relationship between these truths you know is the social position therefore of black people in america far more complex than than simply not 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 saying it's not a part of it but then simply just saying Here's, a, here's an ideological solution to that problem. You know, it's non-ideological, basically. And that's the, the interesting thing about King is he was non-ideological and was able to be critical of ideology, even from people on his own side, even people who were supporting him. And that's, I think, what Coleman Hughes is trying to drive home here. He's not coming at it from a conservative point of view. He's, he's, he's a centralist, liberal, young black man who sees that the only way forward is uh, transcending this bullshit. Anyway... Uh, let me just, uh, I just got a text from my sister here, so let me just reply, um, and I'll come back to it. Give me a second. <laughs> Sorry about this. It's a podcast, though. It's not a, it's not a formal uh, broadcast, so uh, I'm going to take some liberties here. Um So I think that um, the central point, though, is that what King was saying there would now be considered right wing. You know, you could get branded for being right wing for just saying that. 
but actually it's a very important point the because the point i think the point is not saying that it's not it sounds to some people i suppose is victim blaming and i can understand that but it's not i don't think what he's saying is is actually the the position that black people are in they're they're facing a complex economic social position um uh that has far far bigger social implications than simply just race, which is definitely a part of it. Definitely a part of it. That's I think it has to be emphasised here, and I think sometimes it's true that conservatives will gloss over that fact. And I'm not in any. I'm not trying to do that. Um, but I think that the point about bringing in the, those different um, statistics is to say, well, actually. He, we're dealing with a, a social and class issue, an economic issue, an issue of of widespread disenfranchisement that's uh, part of a wider economic problem. Um, and and whatever problems the civil rights movement has been trying to fight against are part of that problem. It's kind of like um, Bob Dylan's song, "Only a Pawn in Their Game." There's a bigger picture to be looked at here, and I think that there's nothing there's nothing whataboutery about that. I think it's an entirely intelligent position to take. And uh, if you're going to deal with the specific problems, you've got to deal with the wider problems that inform those problems. So there you go. That's the point. Okay. King has King also highlighted counterproductive behavioral patterns in the black community. The third rail for racial for today's racial activists. The current view among progressives is that cultural self-criticism is noble when whites do it, but victim-blaming when blacks do it. In contrast, King held that regardless of racial identity, one of the sure signs of maturity is the ability to rise to the point of self-criticism, as expressed in a 1960 address. That's an important point as well, because it, it does drive home the non-ideological nature of King's worldview. The final goal staked for his Southern Christian Leadership con Conference was to reduce the cultural lag in the black community, and he was clear about the nature of this lag. Some Negroes have become cynical and disillusioned, he said in 1960. So many have used their oppression as an excuse for mediocrity. Many of us live about above our means, spend money in non-essential frivolities, and fail to give it to serious causes, organizations, and educational institutions that so desperately need funds. Our crime rate is far too high. Now, that is, you know, these days you would get branded alt-right, and there is actually something essentially conservative about that argument. So it shows that there was something quite conservative, if not explicitly politically conservative, about Martin Luther King's worldview. Now, you, whether you agree or that or not, that's a that's a complex discussion because you could apply that apply that in Scotland. You know, it's like one of the criticisms of the the independence movement I have is it too easily says, well, the whole problem is um, that <clears throat> we're the Westminster and once we get rid of them, everything will be fine. We say, no, actually, that might be a part of the problem. It might be. And I, this is a complex discussion, you know, but there are, there is also an element of using unfairness and injustice as an excuse not to to take action on our own terms and not and not to um you know because taking responsibility is not blame self-blame that's not victim blaming it's just saying what well, it's, it's, it's coming from a place of power and uh not allowing that injustice to determine who you are and what you do 
and it, it's it's a human trait. It's not a criticism of any one particular per, type of person. It's a it's a human trait for us all to do that. But that pointing that out is quite a conservative view, and and I understand it a lot more than I used to. I have to say, the um, it can go too far. The whole sort of libertarian view, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, sort of meritocracy, as I've talked about before on this podcast, the meritocracy is, uh, you know, it's it's simplistic in itself, but a combination of the two is probably quite reasonable. But today, the point here he's making, the t- the, saying that today, like if Martin Luther King had said that now, he would be, you know, he'd, he'd have hell to pay for it. The final goal King staked for his Southern Christian... No, that's not King didn't view himself as an advocate for either political party, but as a conscience of all the parties and of all the people. His universalist self-image, combined with the fact that his politics can't be summarised easily in a simple left-right paradigm, suggests it's a mistake to fight over which half of the political spectrum owns his legacy. Yeah, it's pointless, but people will do it anyway. It belongs to all those who choose to follow his path and take inspiration from his ideals. That's a nice fucking thought, isn't it? Because one of the things that happens now, it feels so divided that because, because, I, because I have a criticism of political correctness, <clears throat> I actually get quite emotional thinking about this, when I have uh, a criticism of political correctness and identity politics, it somehow feels that and some celebrities who I used to admire, like say, I still admire, like Patti Smith, they, they fall into this identity politics. So it feels like the minute I feel, it feels very alienating because I'm thinking, no, that's not what you actually stand for. Like just because you stand for fairness and justice doesn't mean you buy into that stuff. But now it feels very disconnected. So people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Muhammad Ali or James Brown, these are my heroes, formative fucking heroes. Patti Smith, you know, Pete Seeger, these are formative heroes of mine. And it feels like now things have become so tribal that the minute you start criticizing political correctness, it's somehow you're criticizing niceness or common decency. And and or, or the minute you start criticizing identity politics that you're defending racism or something. And and it it comes this thing where like you're no longer allowed to to uh, claim that legacy for yourself, you know? You can't put yourself in the camp of James Brown and Muhammad Ali anymore. So it feels like a sort of the one's soul is being uh, fought over in a sense. And and that, so I, one of the things I really like about this piece is he's saying, no, actually, Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy belongs to all those who choose to follow his path and take inspiration from his ideals. Which is, and his ideals were essentially the the reason why racism is bad is because human nature is universal and human rights are universal. It is not because one's identity gives one special rights or one's identity determines one's social citizenship. It is the opposite. It is the idea that actually what's so what makes for a brotherhood of man, what makes for what makes for Human possibility and human potential is the fact that we, however different we are and however beautifully diverse we are and however uh, unique we are as individuals or as social groups or, or as uh, um, racial groups, the, the whole um, rainbow brilliance of, of humanity 
what so what makes us all of equal worth is a universal ideal of the human soul and that that's something a lot of people that's why a lot of people on who are more center in fact and i i i honestly probably think most people think this that that's the criticism of identity politics and that's the it's the same criticism of 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 white supremacy it's the same criticism and it, and the idea that somehow justice can only be measured out by counteracting the imbalances of history with a new imbalance martin luther king and it's and, he, and, and this article absolutely proves it and and if you want to challenge it you have to go to coleman hughes okay because i'm going to defer intelligence here this guy is much smarter than me and this guy does his research this is true he is looking at this objectively he's saying yes conservatives do sort of um blandify the legacy of martin luther king and and forget the 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 real racial struggle that formed the context of it but also progressives blandify it and try and um claim it for some radical uh, identity politics which seeks to redress the imbalances of history with a new imbalance and Martin Luther King 100% was against that he was a Christian socialist if he was anything politically and he believed in the universal brotherhood of man it's a very it, it makes me think of a man's a man for all that by Robert Burns <clears throat> if we use the adjective radical to describe King then we should follow it with the right nouns. King was a radical Christian, as demonstrated by his commitment to loving his enemies no matter how much they hated him. He was a radical truth-teller, whether that meant telling white moderates that blacks wouldn't wait any longer to be granted full rights, or telling blacks not to make oppression an excuse for failure. Most important, he was a radical advocate, not on behalf of any subdivision of our species, but on behalf of humanity as a whole. So, I think that this is an important piece because it, it 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 doesn't fall into the cultural war around the legacy of Martin Luther King, but allows us to um, to it, it puts to bed problems. Sorry, I'm just looking for a man's a man for all that here, actually, because I think I'm going to read that and then I'll finish up. Here we are. <clears throat> But yeah, this is, uh, one of the things I like about Coleman Hughes is it just makes me feel, oh, maybe I'm not so dumb, you know? And he, here's a guy who whose rigor and uh, intelligence is not in question and who does his research. This is not, here, here's the point I'm trying to make, this is not just some polemic, right? This is not just some guy's opinion. This is a well-researched but very elegantly uh, written, concise piece of opinion but it isn't merely opinion it's very well researched it's rigorous and and this is the kind of journalism that i aspire to which is uh, something which has universal appeal which doesn't seem sort of hoity-toity in its highly researched um, dense way but is informed by a rich understanding of the subject not just a polemic and i am fully aware that my own journalism can veer into polemics too much and sometimes there's a need for that um, and or, or when I go too much into research, it becomes too heavily 
based on the text I'm looking at. So this this is a brilliant piece of journalism because it, it doesn't get bogged down in the resources and sources it's, it's drawing on, but at the same time it's rich with sources. And it's not just um, someone's opinion. And I think that he's putting to bed here the culture war around Martin Luther King's legacy. Now I'm going to read, because it's Martin Luther King Day today and on Friday it's Burns Night, and I have a gig on Burns Night, Bonington Centre, Vauxhall, London, 25th of January, Friday, I'll be there, you should be there too, it's 8.30, kick off, free, free entry, and there's a big band playing afterwards, so I'm just opening up for them, so it's going to be good times. Okay, this is one of my favourite poems, and I think it pretty much sums up my view of, of politics, and one of the reasons it informs this view of politics is I went to a very um, irritatingly restrictive boarding school on the English public school model in Scotland. And um, the message of this song was exactly what I hated about this school. It, it sums up, and as I've said before, Christopher Hitchens, before you start laughing, say, oh, how terrible for you, first world problems. Say, no, Christopher Hitchens made a good point. He said that anyone who's been to a boarding, an English public school boarding school understands the dangers of fascism because it's about the suppression of the individual conscience. It's about the suppression of the individual. The eradicate totalitarianism is all, always starts with the eradication of the individual. It seeks to universalize uh, people uh, in a simplistic way. And that's a different universalism from what Martin Luther King's talking about, because he's talking about universal worth. But, there, but what totalitarianism seeks to do is to standardize rather than universalize. That's what I mean. Okay, and this is an essentially Christian poem as well. Actually, if you want to, if you want to look at it like that, uh, I think that in Burns there was a tension between his his uh, West Coast Scottish Presbyterianism and his Republicanism. I think there's a tension there, and you can see it in the sort of differences of opinion that his poetry manifests. But I think the what's common between both Christian, the progressive Christianism and progressive politics is found in Burns and it's found in this poem. Is there for honest poverty that hangs its head and all that, the coward slave we pass him by, we dar be poor for all that, for all that and all that, our toils obscure and all that, the rank is but the guinea stamp, the man's a gout, the man's the gowd for all that. What don hamely fare we dine, we are hodden grey and all that. Guy fools their silks and knaves their wine. A man's a man for all that. For all that and all that, their tinsel show and all that. The honest man, the wear se poor, is king o' men for all that. You see on Burkey cod a lord with struts and stairs and all that. Though hundreds worship at his words, he's but a coof for all that. For all that and all that, his ribboned star and all that. The man of independent mind, he looks and laughs at all that. A prince can mock a belted knight, a marquis duke, and all that, but honest man's aboon his might. Good faith he mon for that. For all that and all that, their dignities and all that, their pith, the pith of sense and pride of worth are higher rank than all that. Then let us pray that come it may, as come it will for a' that, that sense and worth 
where all the earth shall bear the degree and all that. For all that and all that, it's coming yet for all that, that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that. Yeah, still one of my favourite poems, that. And it's the basis of true liberalism, and I think that probably one of the best, most succinct articulations of romanticism, the romantic liberal. That, and it must have affected people like Keats and Shelley. Sorry, there was a little bit of a, a blip there. I nearly... Uh, anyway, some technical thing nearly went screwy up. I, I'd kind of... Um, had a divided audio on my on my recorder here from ages ago, and so there was a chunk that was just about to run in, so it was going to fuck up the rest of the audio. I just got in time, I think. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to leave it there. Um, thanks for listening. That's episode 95, but I hope it becomes much more clear that what I'm ranting, and, and when I get pissed off at political correctness, it, it comes from a place of of that universalism, which I... I truly believe in, and I think it's articulated in people like Burns, and I think it, it, it's best articulated to me in, in um, John Stuart Mill. Um, and if people call that conservative, I don't think that's conservative at all, actually. I think it's still a very... The idea of universal human rights will always be radical, and the nature of the ideological left proves how... how and their, their uh, distaste for that universalism uh, proves how radical it really is. Okay. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for listening.